Luckily, I'm good looking enough where the bumps aren't going to mess anything up. So it should be should be golden there. Okay, uh, today is the last day in this Address the Mess series. The last message, Lord willing, in this Address the Mess series. And I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have. But we're going to try to finish it today. Um, I'll give you your last brief recap. Uh, but these uh, letters that Paul wrote to Corinth ended up being a real labor of love. Because you never think the first time you reach out to people, they're going to reject you. You assume that when you go to make things right, they're going to help you make things right. And that wasn't the case. So uh, Paul was very committed to this group because he'd spent 14 to 15 months helping them establish their church and left feeling like he had uh, prepared them, only to find out that the Greco-Romans had moved in and influenced them and caused them to be more spiritually immature and immoral. And, and he realized that he needed to contact them again. So he writes them one letter, ends up writing them a series of four letters, but only two were inspired. Uh, and the first inspired letter he wrote him, he thought, well, that should make a difference. So he goes back to see him after writing it, and it didn't. Matter of fact, the false teachers and the false prophets who were real uh, prevalent in Corinth had started turning them against him. So people were actually turning against the Apostle Paul after writing that letter. So he left really downhearted, and he decided to write them the second of the two inspired letters, uh, not just to try to... Uh, defend himself he did defend himself against some of the false accusations they were making against him but also he wanted to encourage them uh, to get back to the roots and remember that God had chosen them for a reason so he was trying to inspire them uh, as well as you know uh, defend his integrity so today Paul's going to share his final instructions before making his third and final visit uh, so I titled this message the final farewell that was probably our quickest recap yet wasn't it see that the last book goes quick all right so, uh, starting in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, he says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Uh, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Okay, in verses 1 through 4, and we're starting with 1 through 3 here, uh, the Apostle Paul finally sends a, like a final warning and encouragement to him, which is really more of a warning than an encouragement uh, to the Corinthian church. And he warns them, listen, I've been there twice. I went there once, you know, when I first came to you guys, and I came there again after I wrote that letter, hoping to get things straightened out. Still not where you should be. Some of you are still unrepentant, so I am coming again. But this time he says, I am coming again, but I'm not messing with you. I'm not messing around anymore. When I come, I'm going to come and be fair. I will be fair to you. I'm not going to come and judge you, you know, based on anything other than the facts. And we're going to establish every fact legally, but I am going to come and be stern with those who haven't repented. And he was going to be fair by making sure that they were, no one was judged without two or three witnesses uh, as the Old Testament required. If you look at Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Our legal system steals a lot of its concepts from the Bible. Uh, so the Bible was the first one to bring, come up with cooperating witnesses, right? So he's saying, I'm going to be fair. I'm promising you I'm going to be fair, but I'm not going to spare those of you who refuse to repent. I'm not going to baby you. I've, co I've come to you two times. This will be my third time. And he had a heart of gold, but he was saying, I can rule with a fist of iron if necessary. And he was going to show them that he could 
uh, he basically he's saying, you want proof that the power of God's working in me? Is that what you want? You want proof that the power of God's working in me? Well, I'll give you proof when I come and judge you by the power of God. Then you'll see exactly how an, uh, an apostle deals with people who refuse to repent when, when confronted with the word of God. So, you know, he'd show them that power by administering spiritual discipline as only a true apostle could actually do and was only had the authority a true apostle had. Now, we see Paul in other areas and other letters he wrote. We see him give us examples of times he did discipline. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, or non-believers, basically, uh, that someone has his father's wife. So someone was having an affair with his father's wife. Verse 2. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, uh, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that is, uh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul basically said, I've decided to let him have his way. He doesn't want to repent. He wants to go his own way. I've decided I'm not going to beg him. I'm not going to chase him down. I'm going to let him go his own way. Parents, have you ever got tired of telling your kids the same thing over and over? And finally, one day you go, okay, see how that worked for you. You ever do that? We've all done that at one time or another. Don't touch that, it's hot. Honey, don't touch that, it's hot. Sweetheart, please don't. Oh, okay, see how it works. Touch it, see what happens. That burned? Hmm. Perhaps that's why I was warning you, don't touch it. You know what I mean? That's where Paul was in 1 Corinthians. He said, I'm just going to turn him over to Satan. If he wants to serve him, serve him. Let's see how that works for you. And I'm not doing that to destroy their faith. I mean, the person, once you believe you're going to heaven no matter what. He's saying they're going to go to heaven, but this way, if I let them fall victim to their own consequences, maybe they'll understand why I've spent so much time trying to keep them in line. So we see here that Paul can be an effective disciplinarian when necessary, but obviously he'd much rather repent and, and, get and have them get focused on, on Jesus again. I mean, no parent wants to discipline their kids. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't want to discipline them, but he got to a point where he's like, fine, fine. You want, you want to be disciplined? Have at it. See, let's see what happens. Now, the Greco-Roman culture had distorted the Corinthians' understanding of real power. See, they were trying to get them to shift their attention off what really is important and replace it with something that's not really important. Uh, so it made them not understand what real power was. They believed real power was found in status. They thought that's where real power was found. And by status, I mean uh, they thought it was found in wealth or philosophy or politics or, you know, anything like that. Uh, because to them, power came from perception. If people saw you as powerful, you were powerful. Right? That's how they saw it. And so they were getting skewed. So he wanted to remind them what real power is. And that it had absolutely nothing to do with status. So he decided to do so by using Jesus as an example. And I love this in verse 4. He says, for indeed he, capital H, talking about Jesus, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. See, sometimes we have to appear weak in order for the power of God to come through and be magnified. Sometimes that has to happen. For example, uh, 
believers should walk away from conflict if at all possible, right? Now, I remember when I was working in a factory when I first got saved, before I got saved, I had a tendency to maybe not walk away from conflict. We're going to leave it at that, right? And when I, when I first got saved, I remember there was this guy at work, and I'd, I'd not, at that time, I'd probably been saved three or four years, and, and he made it a point to make my life terrible. It was his goal in life. I swear I think the devil was just seeing if I would punch him. And just so the devil knows, I was inches from it many, many times. But this guy would constantly say the most filthy things to me. He was trying to provoke me, and I would walk away. And a friend of mine said, I can't believe this is the same Chris Moser. He said, the guy I knew in college and in high school and right after high school, he said, would have laid him out. And I said, well, it has nothing to do with him. God has asked me to be at peace with all people as much as lies within me, so I'm being at peace with him. I would love to punch him. Nothing would please me more than to drop him like a sack of potatoes. But the fact remains, that's not what God asked me to do. So I have to walk away. So what appears as weakness in me walking away was really nothing to do with weakness. It was me leaving room for the power of God to move in a situation that's difficult. That's what I was doing. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. You're welcome for that noise. Uh, So, I mean, a lot of times when we walk away and people see that we walk away, and they see that we remain peaceful even when we're being provoked, they see the power of God. So Paul was u- kind of bringing that same fact to, to light here. So Paul used Jesus and his crucifixion to illustrate his situation with these false teachers. Now here was his situation. Um, he was dealing with a lot, a lot of criticism, um, but a lot of these, uh, these false teachers were questioning the power of God working in him. They were saying he was weak. They said since he didn't come and drop the iron fist on him immediately and, and drop discipline on him immediately and since he didn't come throwing people out of the church and stuff the first time that he was weak and unqualified. And since they refused to stand up and fight back uh, with these false teachers and go toe-to-toe with them, they thought they were weak and unqualified. So basically they were saying if you're really who you say you are, why don't you show it? Why don't you do some of your little parlor tricks? Why don't you, I don't know, turn those rocks into bread or something. Do something cool like that. If you really are who you say you are, let's see you do it, right? And Paul wasn't going to do that. He wanted, the the false teachers wanted him to use the power of God just to impress them, basically like entertainment. But if he would have done that, can you imagine what they would have done? This is a catch-22. Sometimes you got to realize when you're getting sucked into a trap, okay? This was a trap because if he would have started using his power to impress them, you know what they would have said? Oh, look. The great Apostle Paul is here doing parlor tricks to show off for you guys. If he really cared about God, would he be showing off like that? He doesn't show off like that, and they say, well, if you had some power, you'd be showing off. There's no winning here. Okay, it's like getting in an argument with your wife. You can't win. Okay, well, except my wife, because we got that figured out, don't we, sweetheart? <laughs> anyway. But anyway, he was never, ever, ever going to win this, all right? And God's power isn't something believers use to look important or to impress critics. One thing that drives me crazy is when people want to use their ministry to get looked at like they're special or something and more important than anyone else. You know what I mean? That's not what God has. Listen, I've never forget there was this album from a group a long time ago called Everybody Does, which has gone away. We haven't seen them. They were good, though. Anyway, their album cover was blurry. You couldn't see them. Couldn't see their faces. And one day I said, I, I, don't, I guess I don't understand why you blurred out all your faces. He said, well, we wanted people to know that anything good that came from that, we didn't want them to see us in it. We wanted them to see Christ in it. 
And that's what I thought of here as the Apostle Paul was saying, listen, I don't have to show up. I don't care what you think about me. It doesn't matter what you think about me. What matters is what happens to God's people and getting these people back in line. Sometimes the enemy has to feel like he's winning. So at the perfect time, God's power can be magnified. That has to happen sometimes, right? If Paul used the power of God for boasting, he'd be no better than the false teachers. How did they come to power? By boasting about stuff in their lives and saying they were more important and saying they had a higher level of spirituality and and showing off their wealth and things and their power and prestige. And he said, I'm not going to become you to impress you. If I have to become something I'm not to lead people back to Christ, I'll just forget it. That's basically what Paul was saying to him, right? So he had proven himself time and time again to these people, right? Time and time again he had proven himself. So uh, if by not abusing the power of God to impress them meant he was weak, he said, then I'll be weak because I'm not going to do parlor tricks with the power of God. He knew that God would vindicate him when he needed to be vindicated. Now, do you see the correlation between what happened here with Paul and what happened with Jesus? Okay, because Jesus always had the power of God at his disposal. Sometimes I think we forget that Jesus was all God and all man. He was 100% of both. He could have spoke the world out of existence while he was in physical form if he wanted to, because he was all God and all man. Nothing he uh, endured, he had to endure. He could have stopped any of it. If he wanted to, the people who were persecuting him, he could have stood up and said, I'm done, poof, and turned him into a lizard, if he wanted to. You know what I mean? He had that power. He could have wiped him, them and every generation of family they had off the face of the earth as if they'd never existed. He had the power to do that if he wanted to, but he chose, rather, a path of weakness. He chose a path of peace. He allowed them to do to him what they did to him because he knew that this path of weakness would lead him all the way to the cross where God's power would be magnified. If he'd done anything to stop that, God would not have been able to show his power like he did on the cross. When it was dark for a span of three hours, the mountain shook and split and the saints were resurrected. All the power that God displayed at the crucifixion would not have happened had he stopped him. So he said, I choose to be weak. I'm not going to get pulled into a fight before the time. My father knows when the fight has to happen, and I'll let him throw the first punch. As for right now, I choose the path of weakness. This is what Jesus did. But that weakness led to the cross and eventually to the empty tomb, which was one of the greatest displays of power. Because when he was resurrected, can you think of one time when God's power was more magnified than the resurrection of Jesus? So when they were beating him and questioning him, and mocking him, everybody's saying, why not show power now? And he's like, just wait. I'm going to show something way more powerful than me putting these punks down. I'm going to show, he probably wouldn't have said punk, but he did in the Chris Mosley version. But he was basically saying, that, no, no, hold on. God's power will be magnified. All right, look at Ephesians 1.18. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So that you will know what the hope of his calling, capital H, his calling is. Uh, what are the riches of his glory, or, or, or what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When, now listen, he said this is in accordance with the work of the strength of his might. Okay, which he brought about, he brought the strength of God's might in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above the rule of authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him uh, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him uh, who fills all in all. So remember, God did show his power in his time. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not going to do parlor tricks to show you my power. I'm not going to get in one of these, you know, these uh, trying to show off matches. That wasn't what I was thinking. I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't going to get in a peeing match. There you go. He said, I'm not, I wasn't going to do that. He said, I'm, I'm going to wait and let God magnify himself in his time. Because God magnifying himself is much greater than me trying to do it for him. I'll just wait and let God magnify himself. Now, if you remember through, uh, through Jesus' life, God did show glimpses of his power. Jesus revealed glimpses of himself along the way, but just not his ultimate power. If you look at Matthew 4.24, he said, The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering for, uh, uh, with various diseases and pains, uh, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, uh, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So there were times that Jesus did show them the power of God when it was necessary. Notice the times that he revealed the power of God was when it benefited humanity. He never did it to benefit himself. The Bible says that the birds have nests and the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't have anything. He didn't use his power at all for his own comfort or his own good, ever. It was always for the good of mankind. So he did give them handfuls of purpose. He let them see his power from time to time, like healing these people. But he did that because it was for their own good. And likewise, Paul, uh, you know, was once very powerful, but he chose a path of weakness, just like Jesus chose a path of weakness. And I say that because at one time, the Apostle Paul was Saul, which is just the Hebrew name for Paul, and he was the up-and-comer in the Jewish faith. He was powerful. He was a part of the Sanhedrin Council. Uh, he was probably the candidate to be the next big dog. He had power. People feared that man. Remember when uh, God uh, asked Ananias to go and pray with him? He's like, whoa, hold on. I'm willing to do anything, but you want me to send me, you're trying to send me to the butcher. I don't want that, right? People, you know, were afraid of the Apostle Paul. He was very powerful, very resourceful, but he chose to lay that down when he accepted his faith in apostleship. And when he did that, he chose a path of apparent weakness right also like jesus god occasionally revealed glimpses of the power of god in paul but only when it was necessary look at second corinthians 12 12 said the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles so he had displayed his power in corinth to people who needed it they would say that when he would wipe his forehead with his handkerchief he would throw it on the ground people would pick it up and be healed, right? The power of God moved in him, and God revealed little glimpses of his power. But this wasn't how God wanted him to do it, by doing parlor tricks. Oh, just prove you're an apostle, pull a rabbit out of the hat. That's basically what they were saying. And he's saying, that's not, that's not what God has for me. See, there are times when we have to forego our desires in order to accomplish God's will. One thing we have to remember is, and this is hard for humanity as a whole, and if you say, that's not me, I'm humble. Anybody who says they're humble isn't. 
okay? So let me just throw it out there. Okay, I'm just saying, it's against the very nature of the word, right? But, you know, here's the thing. There are times, there are times when we have to realize it's not about us. And that's so hard for us to realize because we are the center of our universe, are we not? And we're always the victim when something goes wrong. We raise our kids, unfortunately, to always be the victim when everything goes wrong. Instead of saying, you know what, I make mistakes. This isn't about me. My faith isn't about me. My faith is about him. Right? Sometimes we have to realize that. The Apostle Paul realized that. It's not always easy. Sometimes you have to take the path of weakness and realize it's not about you. Right? For example, as a pastor, I am always attacked. If you're a young man and you're about to go into the ministry, I'm there for you. I'm praying for you. I hope you do well. But understand. If you're going into ministry hoping they're going to carry you off the field like the Rudy movie, that is not going to happen, okay? Everything you say is going to get twisted and judged. There's going to be people who have ulterior motives and jealousies against your ministry who are going to try to bring you down behind your back and smile right in your face. I see it every day, right? There are going to be people who make up lies about you, some very creative. You know, remember I told you I've had a lot of people tell, you're never going to believe which lie resurfaced lately. And I actually had to laugh. Someone put a lie out there that uh, I was taking money from my own softball organization because we make so much of it. You know, that's why we're always doing fundraisers to keep the lights on. You know what I mean? Like someone's spreading rumors that I took money from my own softball organization in my church. And I'm like, well, if I did that, I would have enough money to get to a retreat in Leado. Okay. So if you didn't see me at a beachfront retreat in Leado, probably not true. Just throwing it out there. And I, when I was told that, they said, are you going to say anything? I said, no. Why? I'm not going to let him suck me into that. You know what I mean? If he wants to know who I am, he can put his butt in one of these seats and listen. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to go out there and get an unnecessary confrontation. That's what the enemy wants. Sometimes you have to take, you have to take the path of weakness. I used to, when I first got saved and got in the ministry, I would defend myself every time somebody said something. Every time somebody said something wrong against me. And then I'm a slow learner. Because after a while I'm going, I feel like I'm constantly in conflict. I feel like all I ever do is argue and defend myself. And then it dawned on me, well, Chris, that's because all you do is argue and defend yourself. The enemy has successfully sidetracked you by accessing your pride and making you feel like you have to defend yourself because people are talking about you. You know it's a lie. God knows it's a lie. Get to work. That's what came over me. That's why I don't defend myself now. I'm like, go ahead. Go ahead. Say what you want to say. I can tell you a lot worse about me than you make up. Right? Just being honest. Right? So I just concluded that the path of weakness or the apparent weakness worked out the best for me. Because you know what I found out? Whenever I don't defend myself and I'm innocent, guess what? God defends me. God always defends me. He always comes to my, to my side every time. It's amazing, and I'm, I'm just saying, this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to get through with that illustration. Now, moving on to verse 5, a lot of people get these sections uh, messed up, so I'm going to make sure we cover this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, test yourself to see if you are what? In the, in the faith, underscore that if you're following along in your Bibles. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now, the way the Greek constructs this sentence and this, these passages is different. And I think that's why a lot of people get messed up with this, because they think that this is saying, test yourself to see whether you're saved or not. 
That is not what he was saying. He was not saying test yourself to see if you're saved or not. There is no test. Here's how you know if you're saved. Have you trusted Jesus Christ for your eternal life? Then you're saved. Okay, because that's all the Bible requires. He's not saying test that. But something interesting here is the word yourselves, translated yourselves in the English, uh, is in the emphatic position in the Greek. And what that means is it's emphasized in a Greek sentence. When a Greek word is in the emphatic, it means it's being emphasized in that sentence as the, as the important topic of the sentence. So what he was saying is they were to put their focus on judging or testing themselves only. Themselves only, not other people. Now, what were they testing? They were testing whether they were in the faith or not. Again, this letter was written to believers. Context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. Okay, they were writing this to believers. You cannot inject unbelievers in here and make it work. So he's not asking them to test whether they're saved or not. This was written to believers, not unbelievers. The phrase in the faith is from the Greek, this, this bear with me, amiopistis is what it is. That's the phrase, amiopistis, and it means a state of being totally convinced. That's what it means. Now, when it says in the faith, they were checking to see if they were in a state of being totally convinced of something. That's what it meant in the Greek, okay? They were supposed to test to see if they were totally convinced in their faith. All right, totally convinced in their faith. Now, in John 15, Jesus used the word abiding. You, if you all remember the scriptures, abide in me and I in you. He used the phrase abiding the same way that the Greeks used in the faith here. You can almost use them interchangeably. If you look at John 15, 3, Jesus said, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself... Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you, what? Abide in me. So being in the faith and abiding in Jesus are conceptually the same thing in the Greek. All right? So what does it mean, being in the faith, abiding in Jesus? Both are talking about surrendering to Jesus, allowing Jesus to be in control of your life. When you are abiding in the faith or, or abiding in Jesus or in the faith, it's saying, I am walking beside Jesus in my faith, trusting him, surrendering myself to whatever he wants me to do, that's what it means. Believers who are in the faith are believers who are surrendered to Jesus. That's what it's talking about, just like those who are abiding in Jesus are surrendered to Jesus. So what Paul was saying in a nutshell is put the effectiveness of your faith, put the effectiveness of your faith to the test. Or basically check to see if your faith is effectively working for God or not. That's basically what he was trying to say there. Remember, over time, again, the Corinthians got sidetracked by the Greco-Roman culture. And pursuing wealth and status and intellect became more important than growing their faith. And Paul wanted them to remember that the same God that was working in him, that performed all those miracles, that did all those great things, that same God was in them. So the powerful things they saw God doing in Paul, they could do too if they would abide in him or if they would be in the faith. So in doing so, they were able to see, if they just looked at how God was moving in the Apostle Paul, they would realize he could move the same way in them, right? And if they tested their faith every day to see if it was effective or not, they wouldn't get off track, right? And Paul also implied that he and the other apostles regularly tested their faith, regularly. And in doing so, they were able to see the evidence of Jesus uh, working in them every day. 
right? That's what they were able to see. So Paul hoped that they understood that he wasn't saying we're better than you. He wasn't saying we test ourselves daily and we pass. You guys haven't. We're awesome. You're terrible. That's not what he's saying. He was saying we're human, and we know the, the, the magnitude of the job we have. So every day we test ourselves to make sure we're not getting off track too. Every day we test and see, is my pride taking over? Is it becoming more about me? Am I putting other people down to lift myself up? Am I walking around creating chaos and pot stirring instead of trying to bring people to Jesus? Am I, am I so focused on myself that I can't see the people around me in need? Every day, see if you are in the faith or abiding in Jesus. And if every day you see conflict in your life that you're surrendering to, maybe you've gotten off track. This is what he was trying to tell them. He just wanted them to daily look. He thought, I, I know in his mind he was thinking, hopefully you can see that I've tested my faith because I've been serving you despite the fact that you guys have turned me, turned against me time and time again. Hopefully you can see it in the way I and the other apostles have been serving you. So those who fail the test here are only those who refuse to allow Jesus to use them. Okay, the word fail here is, uh, in the Greek, is a dokimos, and it means disapproved. It doesn't mean not saved, it means disapproved, right? Remember the Bible says, uh, uh, study to show yourself approved the workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is that same idea. If, if you study to show yourself approved, you're not disapproved. Here he's saying, if you check your faith and make sure you're in the faith, you won't be disapproved or fail. Because every day you're testing it, every day you're checking it. Those who refuse to surrender to Jesus, they're still saved, but their faith might be disapproved, meaning it's not active or effective. Now listen, every believer should make testing their faith a part of their daily routine. Are you convinced Jesus is in you? If so, are you abiding in him and allowing him to use you? Because Jesus can use us just as powerfully as he used Paul. The difference between us and Paul is the level of surrender, and that's it. The level of surrender, and that is it. So the only way Paul, uh, the only way we could fail Paul's faith test is just not to surrender to Jesus. And this is what he was trying to get through to them. Because anyone who trusts Jesus enough to surrender to him always passes that test. Now in verses 7 through 10, uh, Paul reminds them that uh, they really didn't care what the false teachers said about him. So verse 7, he says, we pray that God, uh, we pray to God that you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. I hope we won't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. That means I hope we don't have to give you a whooping when we arrive. When we arrive. Uh, do the right thing, what? Before we come. Do the right thing before we come, even if that makes it look like we have failed to demonstrate our authority. So he's saying, why don't you just repent before we get there? Right? And if, if you do that, we'll get there. And people might say, see, they didn't even bring any discipline this time. But we won't bring it if we don't need to. Right? He's saying just... Just repent on your own. Verse 8, for we cannot oppose the truth, but must always stand for the truth. We are glad to seem weak if it helps show that you are actually strong. We pray that you will become mature. I am writing this to you before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come. For I want to use the authority the Lord has given me to strengthen you, not tear you down. So the false teachers were calling Paul and the other apostles, you know, weak and unauthoritative. Uh, and they said, I don't care. They said, you know what would be best for us is if you repented before we came. Because the false teachers want us to come and just crack the whip and cause a big mess. We would prefer you just fix this on your own. So when we get there, we can actually use the word of God to uplift and strengthen you instead of having to use it like court. That's how we'd prefer to use it, if you would fix this on your own. 
He's saying, I'm happy to show you my authority through teaching you the word of God and growing you as believers. Please don't make me use my authority for discipline. That's not how I want to show you the authority that God has in me. I'd rather just show it to you through the instruction. Now, uh, I'm going to finish up here. The, uh, in these last few verses, Paul's basically just saying a fond farewell. And remember now, he will see his, his plan to see them again, to go to them again. So verses 11 through 14, 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14 says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, uh, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Let me throw something out there real quick. That was cultural, just so you know. You know, I just want you to know, I don't want y'all coming up and kissing on me. That's not what that's saying. Okay, back then in the Middle East, they would kiss each other on each cheek as a greeting. Okay, they weren't dropping them and laying the big smooch on them. It was a kiss on each cheek. And if I go to Israel and they do that, I'm okay. We're in the United States. Y'all keep your lips to yourself. Anyway, (laughs) greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that is the end of that series. So, today we're going to have communion. And I'm going to ask the deacons at the word to come up. And if anybody needs the implements, if you want to come down and take them or grab them, or we we could take them to you if you need be. Communion, what we celebrate as communion, we're celebrating an event in biblical history. Jesus and his disciples sat down at their annual Passover Seder meal. This was a part of the Passover Seder. And the disciples were unaware that in just a few hours, Jesus would be arrested. Uh, This meal was supposed to be a celebration of how powerfully God delivered his people. It was not a formal, somber observance of a ceremonial tradition. It was a time of gratitude for the past and hope for the future. This meal was meant to remind them to eagerly await the arrival of their Messiah. Well, their Messiah was there and seated at their table with them. For one final time, Jesus wanted to celebrate with his disciples and explain his faith. Today, we celebrate the sacrifice Jesus made to pay for the sins of the world. And as I read the final Passover Seder instructions, I'd ask that all who have believed Uh, to just listen to his instructions and take part in the symbolic uh, blood and body of Christ. Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it 
new in my Father's kingdom. 